loving Heavenly Father. Thank you that you loved the world so much you sent your one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I pray that this evening you will take us deeper in our understanding. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word and open our hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, yes, good evening. My name is Andrew Hayes and we are looking at an incredible part of the Bible and an incredible topic, Uh, but I want to start by showing you a video. Uh, It's a man in court talking to the person who wrongly killed his brother. Have a look. say twice or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just I hope you go to God with all what, all the guilt, all the things, the bad things you may have done in the past, each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know, I can speak for myself, I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see, I, I personally want the best for you, and the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please. What's your reaction to that? It's pretty amazing. Very complicated. But there's a man who's clearly been transformed by God's grace. It was actually what happened next that sparked the biggest debates. Because the judge, Tammy Kemp, stepped down from her bench and she went up to the killer and hugged her. And for some people, that, that crossed a line. One journalist wrote, How the brother chooses to grieve, that's his business. But this judge choosing to hug this woman is unacceptable. Is that what a judge should be doing? And maybe you think, yeah, the society, we need more of that kind of thing. But isn't the role of a judge to make sure that guilty people get what they deserve? 
Tonight we're going to focus on uh, verse 5 of that passage we just read in the Bible. Uh, It'll come up on the screen if you don't have a Bible um, with you. And it contains unbelievably good news, liberating, life-changing, hope-giving news. Have a look. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. That verse is what we're going to unpack tonight God justifies the ungodly, the guilty. That's a lot more than a hug, isn't it? He declares them innocent if, if they are, look at it again, not someone who earns it by doing good works, but the person who simply trusts in Jesus. So that that person, no matter how bad they are or what they've done, gets called righteous by God. And get what a righteous person deserves, peace with God, eternal life. Now, how can that be? That's what we're going to dig into tonight because it's the opposite of what we expect. I was chatting to my neighbor the other day and uh, he said, isn't the message of the Bible um, just don't be a prick? Pardon my French, that's what he said. Uh, And I said, actually, no. It's the exact opposite of that. The Bible says you are a prick. You can't not be a prick. But good news, God saves pricks. (laughs) He said, how can that be? That doesn't make any sense. How can salvation have nothing to do with what you do? How can a good person still not be good enough while a really bad person, God, justifies, saves, says, you're right with me and welcomes into heaven? Tonight we're going to see three things. Number one, is that really what it says? Number two, how can that be? And then number three, what does that mean for me, for you? Because this is really big. This is about what sort of God we have. Does he do what's right? It's about what sort of world we live in. Is it one where people just get away with stuff? But it's also about you and me personally. What will happen on the day when you stand in front of God as judge? The name of this topic is justification by faith. And and let me give it to you up front. Here's what it means. It means this. The righteous God declares unrighteous sinners righteous. That's justification. By faith... Not because of anything that they do, it's if they simply trust in Jesus to give them his righteousness. That's what we're going to see in the Bible tonight. And a a famous theologian called J.I. Packer said this, The doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears a world on its shoulders, the entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace. And so if you're you're new tonight, good to have you. We we always have new people joining us every week. You've come on a great night because we're going to look at the very heart of how the Bible says that we can be saved. Martin Luther said, if this article of faith, doctrine of justification, stands, the church stands. But if it falls, the church falls. If we get it wrong, there is no church. There is no people of God because this tells us how to become the people of God. How to become right with him. Sometimes what seems like a small change can actually make a big difference. Um, One time recently, a lady came home from holidays to find her house had been demolished. This was a complete surprise to her. Turns out the demolition guys um, got the number in the address a digit or two wrong. 
Sometimes a very small change makes a really big difference. Tonight's passage will show us what won't work and what does work when it comes to being right with God, where what seems like a small change is massive in reality. And so part one, let's just see, is this really what it says? Because it is so different to what we'd expect. And so let's look at that verse again. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 5. I want you to see for for yourself what it says. Let's go through it. First of all, it says God justifies the ungodly. What does justify mean? Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God makes excuses for us. That's how we sometimes use the word justify. You know, how do you justify that? What's your excuse? But that's not what the Bible means. No, the word justify in the Bible means to declare something righteous. It's a, it's a legal word. You can hear that. Justice, justify. It's a word from the courtroom. In Greek, which is the language that Paul is writing in as he writes this, the word justify comes from the same word family as the word righteous. Let's build some water here. They're waterproof, right? You know how there can be they're word families, right? You can you can kind of hear it in English. Just, justice, justify. It's the same family of words. Well, you can find lots of those words in Romans chapter 3 and 4. And in the Greek, they're all part of the same word family as the word righteous. So the word justify means to declare something righteous. You could say um, righteousify. Justify, righteousify. Except no one would know what you mean. And so that's why we say justify. It's the word for the moment the judge bangs down in gavel and says, not guilty, innocent, righteous. In the 80s, um, an Australian family was camping near Uluru when Lindy Chamberlain, the mum, screamed. A dingo ate my baby! And little Azaria's body was never found. Tragically, um, Linda was found guilty of murdering her own child. And she received a life sentence. But years later, police were searching for a lost backpacker and they found Azaria's tiny white jacket near a dingo's lair. Lindy was then released from jail. And in 2012, more than 30 years later, the coroners closed the case and they declared that the baby really had been taken by a dingo. Terrible tragedy. But that moment, when the coroner declared that, that's what it means to be justified, vindicated. And do you see the difference between that and making an excuse? See, what if they came to her and said, you know, it's it's okay. We understand why you killed your baby. You were justified in doing that. That's one way we use the word. She'd say to them, get away from me. It's a completely different thing to say, you didn't do it. You're completely innocent. You're vindicated as a perfectly good mother. That's what it means to justify, to declare someone righteous. But I wonder if you see the problem. Because look who it is that he declares righteous. It's the ungodly, the unrighteous. Who's that? Now, it's not people who don't go to church. It's not the worst of the worst, it's everybody. We're in the middle of a letter in which Paul has been building an argument as he explains the good news of Christianity and and to understand the good news, 
First of all, there are some uncomfortable truths that we need to face. And so the context is he's been building an argument up until he gets to this conclusion, the chapter right before our passage, chapter 3, verse 10. He says, there is no one righteous. Not even one. Not even one. I get an F in righteousness. You get an F. We all get Fs. Now, what does that even mean, though, righteousness? UrbanDictionary.com defines righteous as awesome, amazing. That wave was so totally righteous, man. Now, I haven't heard anyone use it that way since the 90s, and yes, I was alive in the 90s. Uh, Sometimes when we hear the word righteous, we think self-righteous. But in the Bible, the ultimate definition of righteousness is God himself. God is righteous. Now, what does that mean? It means that, number one, who he is, his character, is completely and perfectly good. And it means, secondly, that, therefore, everything he does is completely and perfectly good. It's completely in line with his perfect, righteous character. And that's actually just really good news, isn't it? That the one in control of the universe, of all things, is righteous. You can trust him. But then what does it mean for a human to be righteous? It means that we live up to God's standards. Who we are, what we do, matches God's commands. Yesterday, my wife and I were levelling the ground in our backyard. We're going to try and and put in an above-ground swimming pool for our kids that we got off um, EV Church Swap and Sell, whatever Facebook group is, for free. Um, We'll find out if it was free for a reason. But we we had to dig into this slope to get it exactly level... And so I'm there with the shovel, and Monique is there um, on her hands and knees with like a, a piece of wood, long piece of wood, within the middle of it, a spirit level with a bubble to see if it's flat. And I keep going, oh, that's pretty good. And she's... It's sloping. You've got to get your shovel in there and dig it out a bit more. God's commands are like the the straight line of that spirit level. And when you measure your life against that straight line, if it matches, you are righteous. And you get all the privileges of being righteous. Peace with God, welcomed into the eternal rewards of heaven. And so the question is, have you always kept God's commands? Have you always loved God with all your heart? Have you always loved your neighbor as yourself? The Bible says no. There's no one righteous, not even one. Now, the good news is that means you qualify. God justifies the ungodly. That's you. So I guess that's kind of good news. But I recognize that if you're new to these things, this might be um, hard to hear. We don't want to see ourselves this way. But it's realistic, actually. If If you look at the world, if you look at your own life, is there anyone who would want to claim that you've perfectly followed all of God's commands. If you do think you've done that, ask someone you live with. Have you ever um, gone into someone's car and gone, what's that smell? And they say, what smell? You just get used to the smell of your own car. Mine just always smells like a wetsuit that I didn't clean out. 
here's the thing. We, we've gotten used to the smell of our unrighteousness because every person that we've ever met has smelled the same. We're all unrighteous. We've lost touch with what we really smell like, how bad we really are. And so we need God's Word to tell us what we actually smell like. And He says, there's no unrighteous, not even one. I was listening to a podcast recently uh, and the hosts were talking about which would you rather um, have, uh, which would you rather have hacked and leaked online? Your notes app or your messages and your, your chat history and your group chats? And they, they said, actually, if either of them leaked, they would just get on a plane, change their name and never return. They'd just be so embarrassed, so, so ashamed of, for example, the things that they'd said about other people, um, which is quite ironic because the podcast is called Shameless. Um, I'm a big fan. I listen every week. Um, but how would you feel if that happened? Or um, what if all the smart TVs in the world just suddenly turned on and started playing a video of your life with your thoughts as the voiceover? How would you feel if your darker secrets were to come out? Deep down, we are all aware that we are not righteous. We haven't even lived up to the standards of others, let alone the standards of God. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to read through all of this. This is Romans chapter 3, 10 to 18. But it's worth reading because it says that we've become morally worthless. Now, um, we've still got worth because we've made an image of God, but we're worthless when it comes to righteousness because, uh, verse 13, our words are unrighteous. Then verse 15 to 17, our hearts are unrighteous. It's not saying, uh, verse 15, that we murder with our hands necessarily. It's poetry. It's we do it in our hearts, even if we never pull the trigger. In our hearts, sometimes we wish we could. Anger, envy, hatred, bitterness. And all of that is because, verse 18, the root problem, the, the worst of all things, actually, is that we don't care about the God who made us and who has a right to rule us. Now, how are you going? That's not the most flattering portrait of you, is it? It's not your best angle. But it is a photo of you and of me. There's just one thing missing from the picture. Um, we just need to fill in what does it mean if we land on the wrong side of God's standard? What will a righteous God do on Judgment Day with those who've rejected His rule and His commands and have been unrighteous? Well, because God is righteous, He always does what is right and just. The Bible says, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, that acquitting the guilty, letting the guilty go, and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. God hates injustice and we hate injustice. Has anyone listened to the Teacher's Pet podcast? It's pretty dark. John is listening to it at the moment. You can ask him about it. Um, it looked like this guy, Chris Dawson, had gotten away with murdering his wife for, for 30 years. It was crystal clear that he'd done it. But the police had botched it and it had never been... And then a journalist, Hedley Thomas, made this podcast laying out the evidence and demanding justice. Why has this guy got off? And was it the public outcry that led to the case being reopened? I'm fuzzy on the details. But last year, 30 years later, Chris Dawson was found guilty and he's now behind bars. God hates injustice and we hate injustice. Except when it comes to us. We don't particularly like the implications for us. We want... Justice for thee, but mercy for me. But God is, is righteous and therefore he will punish all unrighteousness. So Romans chapter 2 verse 5 says, 
Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Now, this is bad news. It doesn't bring me any pleasure to, to tell you about it, except that until you see the problem, you'll never find the solution. My, my one-year-old's been sick since Wednesday. And this morning, she had a fever of 40-point-something. My wife's a nurse, or was a nurse, and, and she said that's the highest she's ever seen. And so she says, I've got to take him to hospital. And when she gets there, it turns out he's got a, a chest infection. They put him on antibiotics, and it's amazing. A few hours later, he's looking much better already. But if we'd ignored the problem, he never would have gotten better. He may well have died. So do you see your problem? Unrighteous people are not at peace with God. We face not heaven, but eternal punishment. That's what makes it such good news, that there is a treatment. God justifies the ungodly. This is why we need it so much, but this is also what makes it so shocking. How can God declare unrighteous sinners righteous? This is so outrageous that some people just think, ah, what it really means is that God helps us to become righteous. Not that he declares unrighteous sinners righteous. No, he helps us to do good works and stuff like that so that we're not unrighteous anymore. We're no longer ungodly. But it can't possibly mean that. Because look who it is that God justifies. It says, I'll get the next one, the one who does not work but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It's not the one who does works to become righteous in themselves. Paul is contrasting two approaches, one that doesn't work, that um, works what we do, and one that does faith where we trust in what God does for us. Have a look at Romans chapter 3, verse 28. We maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. God justifies us not by helping us to do righteous works so that we're somehow righteous ourselves, but regardless of our works. They've got nothing to do with it. The Bible says good works don't work. Now, why is that? Because they can't take away the, righteous, or the unrighteous things we've already done. Imagine this cup of water I've got here. Sorry, it's a bit uh, yucky illustration. Imagine in it there's some poo. Now, how much poo would you tolerate? There isn't, just to be clear. It's an, it's pretend. How much poo would you tolerate? Some says none. Do we have any takers for higher than none? What about just a little schmear? Would you drink it? That captures something of how the, how the righteous God reacts to the unrighteousness that's in us. Even just a little bit is far too much. But I've got some sugar. What if I added a whole bunch of sugar? Does that change your answer? Anyone? 
All right. That's what we think that our good works do. Surely, surely somehow they sweeten the deal with God. But it makes no difference to the unrighteousness that's already there. How can you get rid of the unrighteous things that you've already done? You can't go back in time. They're done. Uh, there's an Australian musician called John Floriani. And um, he's, he's not a Christian. He's a, a nihilist um, you know what that means, a nihilist. Um, and he sings this song called Repent about the guilt of a past act. Now, I don't know the actual story. From the song, it sounds like perhaps he's, he's hit someone and it's done some real damage. And he sings about the haunting effects of guilt. Guilt that he doesn't know how to remove. He sings, I live that moment every night to cleanse myself with the pain. You lay with me, the person he's hit, while I lie awake at night, cursing these hands for what they've done to my eyes, for what I've seen myself do. There's no river that you can wash in to take away what you've done. No amount of money given to the poor. Floriani understands that only one thing can, I actually think, is a very insightful line. That's why he tries to cleanse himself with the pain. I can only get rid of this by facing the consequences. I won't walk free until I've done my time. But the problem is, and the reason it doesn't stop for him, is that the consequences of wronging an infinite God are infinite. And so we'll spend eternity doing our time. And we're fools to imagine that our little good works can deal with that. Any approach to God that's based on trying to earn, deserve, be good enough, it just won't work. And that's why God has to justify the ungodly. Look again at verse 5. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. I wonder if you see what this is really saying. The righteous God declares unrighteous sinners righteous even though we aren't. If we simply put our faith in Jesus, our trust in Jesus. And that's what Abraham did. If you've got Romans 4 open in front of you, you can see it in verse 3 of this chapter. Abraham was a hero of the faith, was he not? Except that he was also a liar and had more than the maximum number of wives, which if you're in doubt, is one. And so even Abraham, who's better than Abraham? Even Abraham was justified by faith. God made him a promise. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The same with David. It goes on in verse 6. Another hero of the faith. He wrote most of the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. That's David. Although he was actually an adulterer, wasn't he? And a murderer. So You see, it's always been this way. Even the best of us fall short. And that's why he says, verse 7 and 8, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are are covered. This is really good news for sinners like me. But how can it be? I actually kind of hope... Is anyone getting a little bit angry? Uh, maybe don't do yourself in, but I actually kind of hope someone is. Because I actually want you to start to see the problem of forgiveness. Most people out there, they just assume, yeah, God will just forgive. That's his job, isn't it? There's actually a big problem with forgiveness. How can the righteous God call unrighteous sinners righteous? 
Well, the answer is Jesus. Why did Jesus die on the cross? This is why. It's called the great exchange. We are unrighteous, but Jesus was righteous. The only man who always lived up to God's standards. And on the cross, Jesus swaps places with us. So our unrighteousness is put onto Jesus and he dies to pay the punishment. Jesus' righteousness is given to us. That's why Jesus came and lived and died on a cross. So look at Romans chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. Now you can catch the context here, verse 22. It says, Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. That's what we've been seeing. And he points out that this is true whether they're Jew or Gentile because, verse 23, they both fall short. And so, verse 24, both Jew and Gentile, all of them need to be justified. And this, look at at verse 24, says he does as a gift, freely by his grace. And how can he do that? Well, verse 25 has the answer, because God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Our unrighteousness is put onto Jesus and he dies in our place to pay our punishment for our unrighteousness. Jesus Garcia is the name of a Mexican railway worker. Not the same Jesus, it turns out. Uh, This Jesus, Jesus Garcia, noticed, true story, that a railway car that had stopped in the village was on fire and he knew that it was filled with dynamite. And so he ran the other direction. No, instead of running away, he jumped in and he drove it as far away from the town as he could. The explosion was felt 16 kilometres away. Garcia was killed, but the town was saved. That's what Jesus does for us. On the cross, he bore the punishment of a billion sinners. And so if Jesus has paid your punishment, there's nothing left for you to pay. Just like in a bushfire, the safest place is where the fire has already burned. It won't burn there again. John Floriani realized we can only walk free if we've done our time. God says you can walk free because Jesus Christ has done your time. Look how Paul um, finishes in verse 26. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he could be both just, righteous, fair, and the one who justifies. God did this so that he could make a way to declare unrighteous sinners righteous without compromising his own righteousness. He doesn't just let unrighteous people walk away unpunished. He punishes, but Jesus takes that punishment. And so justice is done. No wrongs are left unpunished. And don't forget, um, important point, Jesus is not just some random third party. God doesn't just grab some innocent bystander and throw him under the bus. No, 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 Jesus is God himself. He's actually the one we owe the debt to. He decides to pay it. He's the judge who gives the sentence, but who then steps down from the bench, not just to give a hug, but to be handcuffed instead. Now, what about that other arrow? You ever thought about that? Jesus doesn't just take away our unrighteousness. We get Jesus' righteousness. You know when you look in your bank account, there's two types of transactions? Well, hopefully, 
There's two types of transactions. You've got debits. That's when you spend money, it debits from your account. But what's it called when someone gives you money? Anyone know? A credit. And then credit cards just confuse the whole thing. So forget about them. When someone gives you money that goes into your account, that's called a credit. What was theirs is now considered yours. That's what happens to the person who trusts in Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is deposited into your spiritual bank account. So it's not that Jesus helps you to live righteously. That would be your righteousness. No, no, no. It's Jesus' righteousness credited to you. It's now yours, legally. And so look at verse 5. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It's like we're a gold digger and we've married a really, really rich person. Our, our gambling debts have become his problem now and all his riches become ours. When you put your trust in Jesus, you're, you're united to him by the Holy Spirit, kind of like a marriage. And that's how your unrighteousness comes to be on Jesus and how his righteousness becomes yours. And that is actually why it's by faith. Why is it by faith? Well, um, verse 16 in chapter 4 says it's by faith so that it might be by grace because chapter 4, verse 4, when you work, that's not grace, that's, that's just your, what you deserve, your wages. But the reason it's by faith is because that's the one thing that's not doing a thing. It's simply trusting someone to do it for you. Faith is one of the most misunderstood things in the Bible. People talk about um, faith like this. They say, you know, the important thing is that you have faith, that you're a person of faith, and it's less important kind of what that faith is in. I'm sorry to say, people sound blunt, I'm going to be blunt, that's garbage. The only thing that matters is what your faith is in. That's the only thing that matters. See, we've got faith all the time. When you came here tonight... Did anyone look under a car to check that the brakes were okay? No. You trust. And it's not that there's no evidence for it. The car worked yesterday. These things are made by good engineers. There's standards. And, um, you know, to get your car registered, you have to get a mechanic to look at it every year. Now, if the brakes fail, does it matter how much faith you've got? No, your, your faith won't stop the car. It's the brakes that stop the car. And so what matters is not that you are a person of faith, that you have a great quantity of faith. What matters, it's all about what is that faith in? The reliability of the person you put that faith in, which means faith is not, it's not positive thinking, it's not believing without evidence, it's not even just um, believing in God or believing that Jesus died and rose again. The Bible says even demons believe those things. The verse we've been looking at, Romans chapter 4, verse 5, translates the word faith really, really helpfully. It translates it as trust. How do you trust Jesus? Well, you do have to understand what he did to save you, and you do have to believe that he did it. But the key step is that you actually need to commit yourself personally to him. You need to entrust yourself to him as your saviour, the one who makes you righteous. And therefore, as well as that, you trust him as your Lord. If he can be trusted with your eternal life, he can be trusted with your life now, can't he? And so you don't just stand next to the car going, yep, 
I believe that the brakes will work. No, 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 you get into the car. You entrust yourself. That's what faith means. Which means faith is not a thing that you do to earn something from God. It's simply the way that you accept what he's done for you. And so we've seen that, number one, yes, that is really what it says. We've seen, number two, how that can be. And so now to finish, what does it mean for you and me? And I love to talk about what this means. You can see on the slide three people rejoicing because they've understood what justification means for them. And so I'm going to give you three things. Ready for this? Number one, if your faith is in Jesus, you have peace with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, the greatest blessing of being justified. You get God himself. You can enjoy a relationship with the God who made you and loves you with nothing to fear from him because he has declared that you're right with him. He's already told you. Now, we'll come back to what this means next week. What does it mean to be adopted as God's child? And I have a feeling John is going to try and convince you that that's more important than justification. We'll see, John. We'll see. Number two, you can be confident that you have eternal life. Some religions uh, will teach you that you can't possibly know for sure whether you'll go to heaven. The Bible says you can know for sure. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, how can you know for sure? It's because that's what justification is. Think about it. Justification is the judge giving the verdict. And so you don't need to wait until judgment day to find out God's verdict. If your faith is in Jesus, he's told you the verdict already. Righteous. And therefore, why wouldn't he welcome you into heaven? You don't need to wonder, will I get in? If your faith is in Jesus, the punishment's been paid. You're righteous. The door is wide open. God's put on a playlist. He's waiting for you to get there. And number three, no condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this, and if there's a verse to memorize, it's this one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When God declares you righteous, that's what you are. So now there's no reason why he or anyone else could condemn you. I think sometimes we think that God just kind of pretends. Like, ah, I see you sin there. But I said I'd forgive you, so I'll just kind of turn a blind eye. No, it's not like that. Justification means he doesn't see your sin there because it's not there. It's not there anymore. He's not just seeing you through kind of Jesus-colored glasses, but if you took them off, you're actually still covered by all your sin. No, 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 you are joined to Jesus so actually so genuinely that you are genuinely really spiritually clean now you are still sinful in that you do still do sinful things but they just go all onto jesus not onto you it's like never wet have you heard of never wet watch this it's this thing you spray onto stuff and it makes them not able to get wet 
It's a good name. I don't know why I haven't done this to all my clothes. Being justified is like being covered by Neverwet spiritually. Even when you sin again, it doesn't stick to you. We're all going to go on. What's that cost now? <laughs> Your sin just slides right off onto Jesus, which means that's how it can be true that you are simultaneously a sinner and yet righteous. A sinner in your actions, but righteous in your spiritual state. If you're getting that, people sometimes ask, should I feel guilty? Well, it depends. There's a sort of guilt that's like a smoke alarm. It's telling you that something that you're doing or a situation is wrong, and so it's usually specific. You can usually identify, yeah, that is tied to a specific action or situation that I'm engaged in. That's actually really helpful guilt. That's telling you that you need to repent, And when you do repent, you feel better. You know that God forgives you and it's a joy to be living his way again. It's one kind of guilt. But there's another kind of guilt. That's a helpful guilt. The other kind of guilt is a guilt for sin that you've already repented of. It's kind of a vague general guilt. If you're a Christian, you don't need to feel that kind of guilt anymore. Because you're not guilty. God has declared you righteous. Sometimes that comes from our weakness as humans, struggling to believe that God really has taken away our sin. Um, Sometimes there can be other things involved, mental illness. We know that Satan as well tries to convince us that God doesn't really love us. And so what do you do with that kind of guilt? You remind yourself that God has declared me righteous. There is no condemnation for me anymore. God no longer condemns you. And not only that, no one else can condemn you either. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. You want to go against him? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. No one can condemn me. Uh, condemn you. Now, that doesn't mean if you get caught shoplifting, you can just go, ha-ha, can't charge me. No, 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 there's still some consequences in this world. But when God declares you righteous, nobody gets to say otherwise. Not another person, not the devil, not even yourself. There's no condemnation for your lies. There's no condemnation for your addiction. There's no condemnation for what you did to that guy, what you said to that girl. The greed hidden in your heart. No condemnation. The envy and bitterness. The sexual relationship with somebody you're not married to. The time you physically abused somebody. The time you disrespected somebody publicly. To get ahead. The time you had that abortion. The time you didn't stand up for the person next to you who was being bullied. All those times you put me first. There's no condemnation for any of those things. 
the wonder of justification by faith is that all of those things are gone. Believe it. If you've cried out to God for mercy, if you've put your trust in Jesus, then because he freely justifies the ungodly, you are righteous. As Christians, sometimes we wonder, does God really love me? And behind that is often our performance. If we've been reading our Bible, oh, then we're all good. But if we've slipped a bit, well, then we, we ride the roller coaster of our day-to-day successes and failures. This is our daily experience, is not that bottom line of our relationship with God. And so we can sometimes think, he loves me, he loves me not. Except, no. If you trust Jesus, you are at 100% all the time. You're not even just at zero. It's not just as if I'd never sinned. It's just as if I'd never sinned and always done everything God wanted me to do every single time. It's not just no crosses, it's all ticks. Every time that you had a chance to help that little old lady, you did. Every thought you ever had was always God first, other second, self last. Do you feel that you've been letting God down lately? Do you feel that? I've done it again. God, you must be so sick of me. What does God see when he looks at you on your worst day as a Christian? Perfection. Sometimes we can think that, you know, God doesn't really want to hear from me after I sin until I do a bit better. No. If your faith is in Jesus, you you don't need to, to make it up to God. You can pray to him right there in the mess because he, even then, you are righteous. God hasn't blinked. He's still there, close as ever. And so you can come back to him right then with confidence, knowing that he wants you to. Now, this really hit me when I was in first year at uni. I went to the annual conference of the Christian group. We spent a whole week looking at the topic of justification, and it changed my life because it gave me a rock-solid foundation for my relationship with God. In fact, I borrowed really heavily from those talks from Ron Kemp tonight. And so if you want to go deeper, look for Sydney Uni EU, or one word, in your podcast app, search for justification, and you can find six one-hour talks. I tried to get it all in. It wasn't really mathematically possible. But these truths set me free to go and live for God with great joy. I realized that I can live for God not out of guilt, not trying to earn, not trying to get myself up to that 100% line. I can live for God stoked that I'm already on that line. I can't even express to you the joy and freedom and energy that that gave me in my Christian life. Thank you, Jesus. And so what do we do with all of this? Just one application. Let go of everything that you are holding on to to be right with God and instead embrace Jesus Christ as your only hope of righteousness. What is it that you're tempted to look to? If God asked you on Judgment Day, why should I let you in? What is it you'd point to? I haven't hurt anyone, at least not intentionally or at least not too badly. That's, that's not enough, the Bible says. 
I've generally tried my best, I've been true to myself, I've followed my values, that's not enough. Going to church, reading your Bible, praying, baptism, communion, helping out, serving in ministry, doing penance, saying Hail Marys, none of it achieves you any righteousness in God's eyes, the Bible says. Why should God let you into heaven? If your answer starts, because I... It might be a sign that you're relying on something you have done, on, on works, but good works don't work. And so you have to stop trying to swim yourself in order to grab onto the rope. Your only hope is that rope, and that rope is Jesus. And so if you've not done that, let me invite you. In fact, God, by his word tonight, encourages you, calls you, put your faith in Jesus as your only hope of righteousness before God. You can do it in your heart right now. You can do it tonight on your bed. Lord, I do trust you for salvation. Help me now to live for you, not to earn it, but because now I get to as your child. And if you've done that, rejoice. Live lives full of confidence and joy and love and hope and praise him for his glorious grace. We do praise you, Heavenly Father, that you have sent Jesus what a wonderful salvation. Pray that anyone here tonight who is trusting in themselves would see the problem. Let go of their works. Cling to Jesus as their only hope. Trust Him and explode with joy knowing that they've got peace with God, eternal life and no condemnation. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.